Today, as a matter of fact, we're talking about the dark side of love. You say, dark side of love? And uh, yes, we're going to talk about the dark side of love. Our text, John 3.16, and <clears throat> that's interesting. My dad, the last, about the last three to four years, he preached here for us. Um, he'd get up about every sermon that he was going to preach and say, our text is John 3.16. Sermon had nothing to do with John 3.16, but that was his text. He loved it, you know. And so he would read that text, and he'd go ahead and preach the sermon he's going to preach. As a matter of fact, I would look, every once in a while I'd sneak back in his office and look at the sermon, and sure enough, it had another text down, but he was going to do John 3.16. And hey, that's a great verse. It really is. But John 3.16 in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Let's start out with John 3, 16. For God. Now just think about that. Just that first and second word. For God. God, the creator of the universe. Psalms 33 lets us know he spoke the worlds into existence. And we also know that by Genesis chapter 1. He said, let there be light. And there was light. God who set the course of the stars, who set the boundaries for the oceans and the rivers, God. For God so loved the world. Now I want you to think about that. This world is wicked. And anybody that can't see that um, has a problem. But he so loved this world. And to love us, even with what this world is, says a lot about him. But what is the definition of that love? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When you think of begotten son, just the name son many times in our New Testament was translated from a Greek word in which it was originally written in the Textus Receptus, and it is the Greek word huios. It has the idea of the very seed, the very seed of God. And we know as Christmas is getting close that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary as we told you a week or two ago, that wasn't a sexual thing, but as, as a spirit, being part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three divine persons in one divine essence. And as a spirit, and God is a spirit, he could come upon Mary and just basically speak. And a seed was formed in her that the Father throughout the rest of that nine-month period would form the body of that child. The Trinity, all involved in so loving us that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever, isn't that great? You know, I, I will tell you that uh, I, I didn't graduate from high school at cum laude status. Instead, it was Lottie, how come? <laughs> you know? Uh, but 
it was, uh, it was uh, still a thing that I would look back and I'd just say, you know what? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that whosoever means whosoever. That's anybody. For whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. That is to be separated from God forever in a lake of fire where one never ceases to exist and there's no escape. And by the way, this is a side note, and I usually do this at funerals. The word death has never meant ceasing to exist. The word death means separation. It's meant that from the very beginning. At when your body dies, your spirit, remember, we were made in God's image, and your spirit departs from this body. It separates. It's only in this life, however, that we can find the forgiveness and the saving grace of God. But you must do it before this body dies or your spirit. That very person who you are will be forever in a lake of fire and never cease to exist, although you want to. Torment day and night. And yet in his great love, a great love that he was not obligated to do, but he did out of love. He died for our, our dark side. So verse 5 of Revelation chapter 1 says this, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, why was he the first one to be raised from the dead and to ascend into heaven to live forever? I mean, Lazarus was raised from the dead. We can read in the Bible some that were raised from the dead, but they would die later. But Jesus would not die again later. He rose from the dead. Over 500 people saw him at one time. I think that's a pretty good witness, don't you? And to raise from the dead, it was a proof for us. It was that reason for faith that when you die in Christ, your spirit will be as cognizant of everything, but it'll just be in a different place. It'll be in heaven. But one day, if you're in Christ, the body will raise, but it will be changed like unto the glorious body of Jesus Christ and forever be with the Lord. To be absent of the body, Philippians chapter 1 says, is to be present with the Lord. Oh, what a far better way that that'll be for every person on this earth and so that knows Christ. And so again, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Remembering that the Bible told us the life is in the blood. And that life was in the blood of Jesus Christ that would cleanse us from our sin. I know we have visitors today, but a few weeks ago I shared with you that the color of sin, if you read the Bible, you'll find the color of sin is red. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's what our sin is. But it's darkness. And so, 
again, we see that he died for that sin for us. Well, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get into the message today. Father, I pray now that as we deliver your word to these people today, I pray that it would meet the needs of each heart, the spiritual needs, the real needs, maybe needs that's not seen by themselves, but you know the need. Lord, if one is without Christ, they could not give a biblical reason why they know that they died today, that heaven's their home. I pray that today would be the very day they come to Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. I'm going to begin this message this morning with an allegory. Now keep it in mind as I tell you this allegory, that an allegory is a figurative, I think that's the best way to say it, a figurative description of real facts. So again, as we go in this message today, keep that in mind. An allegory is simply a description of real facts. This story begins on a dark, stormy night. There are heavy, overhead clouds that are blocking the sun, uh, the moon, and the stars, and any light from being able to penetrate. The clouds are so thick. We see it is a quite, uh, a quite scary darkness. This darkness is in a large city. The city is noted for its crime and violence. It's a scary violence, and it's a scary darkness. And yet, no one wants to step outside. A little child lies restless in his bed. But outside, there's a man. He has a very stern look on his face, and he seems to have some kind of an intent on that same face. He enters the house very quietly. He tiptoes up the stairs, and then he quietly, very quietly, enters the child's bedroom. Very stealthily, he walks toward the child's bed, and then he stops. He looks down at the child. The little one sees him, and he begins to scream. And mother hears that scream, and she comes rushing into the room. And snatches that little one up. The little child throws his arms about his mother's neck. And it's with such a tight grip, it feels like a vice grip around her neck. 
that is so tight it's seemingly uh, saying, to, well, really just pleading, begging even, that it seems to scream, Mother, please save me from this man. The man, seeing the little ones in her hands, withdraws to the hallway, but he doesn't leave the house. There's a telephone in the hallway, and he sees it. He picks it up. He makes a telephone call, but he's speaking ever so softly. Evidently, it's to an accomplice. But what are they planning? What are they talking about? He hangs up, and then he re-enters the room. He walks up to that mother. The child is still in her hands. And then he yanks the child from mother's clinging arms. And she's crying uncontrollably. And he rushes out the room with the child in his arm and down the stairs. The child is crying, but there's a car awaiting outside. The child cries loud and he's sobbing real loud. The man quickly gets in the car and does his best to stifle that loud cry. The driver speeds speedily down the streets of that dark, dark city. He's driving street after street after dark street. Finally, they stop at a large but sinister-looking building. All is quiet. But the building is mainly a dark building. As they look at the building, and they look all the way towards the top. It's going up, up, and up. And there's no light. Just darkness. But then at the top, there seems to be a blaze in a room. That is, it's a blaze with a bright light. The man jumps out of the car and he hurriedly rushes the child inside. And goes up to that room, that brightly lit room. And then he hands the little one to a waiting man. They have a short conversation. Then the man leaves the room. He leaves the little one with that man. When he leaves the room, he's going to tarry out in the, the hallway. That little one in the other man's arms now, 
is handed over to another accomplice. This time, it's a woman. The two take that little one into an inner room. As the man who brought the child waits in a hallway, remaining there, wondering what's happening next. Back inside that room, they lay out the child on a surface, a risen surface, as a bed. The man then raises his hand and then he plunges into that child, a, a brightly gleaming, sharp knife into the very vitals of this little child. The child lays motionless as if dead. Now, in listening to this point, this, to this story, I think that you would have the same reaction that I would have. I want to catch those criminals. And I want to do more than just catch them. I want to do the same thing to them that they did to that little one. It would make me angry. I would want to be the one just like they used to when we had the electric chair. There had to be somebody that pulls the switch. I would volunteer to pull that switch on the people that would do that. You see, that's a terrible thing, but I had not told you the rest of the story. I think if you hear the rest of this story, you'll completely understand. That little child who was awakened in the night, he was awakened not by the man that walked up the steps, but by a painful, fatal disease, an inherited thing. The man was actually the father of the child. The lady was his wife and the mother of the child. Their child needs a transplant. They had met with the doctor, and the parents were told that as the child grows, the disease is going to grow. It'll be too far severe to do anything about it if you don't get them to me in time. It's going to get to the point where the pain is just absolutely excruciating. And those screams will be real screams. The disease had grown and that child is now screaming. And the doctor said, when it reaches that point, you get that child to me as soon as possible. Doesn't matter what day or night it is, time. It just doesn't matter. You give me a call. 
and we'll replace that diseased part of that child with a donor, a new part. I have a donor. But the sooner you do it, the better it will be. Yes, that father who had walked up the stairs to deliver the child was delivering him to someone who could perform the surgery. That sinister-looking building was actually a hospital. That's where the surgery would take place. The surgery that would change the child's life for the better. The phone call that was originally made was that father calling the doctor. When he delivered the child to that great physician, he stayed in the hallway because now he awaits to learn the outcome of this surgery. But what I want you to see is what seems so dark to us at the beginning of this allegory. That that you listened to and probably felt the same way as I would at the first of the story. It was actually, it was actually an act of love. But for that child, for that child to have that knife plunged into him, it was painful. It was terrible. But that old thing, that old diseased thing would be pulled out of him and there had been another who had a perfect part and it would be transplanted into him. That was love. That was love of the parent, but that was love by the one who gave it. So that was a story, but it's an allegory. But it's important that you know of the transplant. We'll need to have that same transplant ourselves if we'll have eternal life. See, our story is somewhat similar. That is our personal story. The parents had a disease. That disease was the diseased nature, an old nature we call it. You're born with an old nature, every one of us. This child was born with an old nature. It's diseased. Instead of living for a hundred years, a thousand years, ten thousand years, that disease says three score and ten it may be more but it's short 
then our spirit will flee this body into that eternal separation forever from God if we don't get a transplant, a new nature. You see, Adam and Eve were our parents. They are our first parents. They passed down to their children, and then the next to their children, and down through the ages. As a matter of fact, that would make all of us in here, in a sense, relatives. Because we both, all of us together, have the same parents. Adam and Eve. They sinned. That day they sinned, God said that in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, Adam lived another 900 years after that day. Yet, that very day he did die because his spirit was then separated from God. And when this body died, that spirit would go to a place that was not prepared for human beings. It was prepared for the devil and his angels who would try to corrupt a holy heaven. But if we don't receive that transplant, then we too will spend the same eternity in the same place where one doesn't cease to exist, where one cannot escape, where one is tormented day and night forever and ever, we will spend that time there with a place that torments the devil and his angels. It is such. You see, men draw cartoons of the devil, Satan, tormenting little children and to tormenting people in hell. But folks, it is so bad he's tormented. He's not doing the tormenting. That's what hell is. In this present life, if you don't receive Jesus Christ through repentance and faith, and you say, you know what? I want to know two things about that, repentance. What is repentance and what is, you talk about faith. Faith and what? Repentance. Now, the folks that are members here, they've heard me say this many times, and I'm just glad that they put up with me. But the truth of the matter is, my wife and I, as a matter of fact, this coming Saturday will be 55 years ago that we met in that church. She took my seat. <laughs> I still have to sit up here most of the time, okay? But um, we met in church. 55 years ago on Saturday. And I think of that. We dated and then we got married. You know, in our marriage vow, forsaking all others. So I probably had about two or three different girls I had dated. And she had about two or three hundred different boys that she had dated. Uh, but essentially, we were all repenting. We were both repenting. We were turning to one another. Turning from and turning to 
turning to with a commitment to that person. See, a lot of people think of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, that paid the penalty for my sin. I don't have to do anything about it. He already paid for it. Yeah, he did pay for it. But there's a stipulation, repentance and faith. He said, except you repent, note the very words of Jesus, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Faith, faith is believing what I said earlier, that Jesus Christ not only died for our sins, he was God come in the flesh, the very Son of God come in the flesh, who had dwelt in eternity past and still today, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He said in John, the book of John, the Gospel of John, He said of us who would receive Him that He and His Father, His Holy Spirit, would make abode in us. When you receive Christ as your Savior, you're making a commitment of yourself to Him. It's not just, okay, I... God, I, just, I said a prayer, and that takes care of it. Now I just can live like I want to. No, you're giving yourself to him. He's the head. So you receive him as your Lord and Savior through repentance and faith, believing that he rose from the dead. And that's such a great thing that he rose from the dead and was witnessed by over 500 people. Because that's the guarantee that one day receiving him, even when this body dies, it's going to rise again. And we'll be with the Lord. The resurrection is what we look forward to. His blood gave us eternal life upon receiving Him as Lord and Savior. But He doesn't force it on you. But you must receive it. You know, the Bible tells us that we all have that disease, that sin disease, the old nature. Romans 3.23 says, For all, none of us are excluded, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You ever heard people say, oh, I'm as good as they are? Ah, they're going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. No. You're not compared to them. The glory of God is Jesus Christ. You know who you're compared to? You're compared to the perfect, sinless Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us measure up to Him. And I'm talking about the sinless Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in His humanity. And so this, this Jesus is the donor who gave his life, gave his blood that you and I might receive the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ of our sin and a new nature. All of it came through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He said in Romans 6, 23, for the wages. You know, most of you, if you have jobs, you, you expect to get paid the wage that you've worked for. For the wages, what we've got coming, for the wages of sin 
is death. Final. Complete separation from God forever in the lake of fire. But if there's a Savior, and you'll give your heart and life to Him, He'll say, You see that hospital? That hospital was the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where a soldier, a Roman soldier, plunged a spirit into his side, but that's where it was far worse than that. For Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, there was always help for him when he was on, uh, it, on, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Angels appeared. When he was in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, the devil did all of those horrendous temptations upon him. The father, even after he endured those temptations in his human body, waited until after they were over to send angels to minister to him. But on the cross, your sin, my sin upon him. For 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He didn't become a sinner. He became my actual sin, everything that my sin is. So that he would be sacrificed. His blood would be shed to pay in total for my sin. That blood was carried up into heaven at his resurrection and set on the great mercy seat of heaven so that now whoever receives him, that blood is applied to their account of paid in full because Jesus paid it all. Yes, that is the new life. That is the eternal hope that comes from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My friend, when I think of it, we don't earn it. Why? Again, he said, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we've earned. But the gift, you don't earn a gift, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Saved? Oh yeah, saved. From the consequence of that eternal sentence of death for our sin, but was wiped away by the blood of Jesus Christ. If we'll receive him as our Lord and Savior, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord, his deity, Jesus, his humanity, for you was a gift. For me, it was a gift. 
that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made to salvation. For whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. You received Jesus? If you received him, are you ashamed of it? You don't want people to know? If you don't want people to know you're a Christian, you don't want people to know you got saved, then my friend, you're ashamed. You're just believing the things about Jesus as a fact, but not as receiving him into your life as your Lord and a change of your life. He said in the book of Luke, chapter 12, verse 8 9. Also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man, that's Jesus, also confess before the angels of God. But he that redeemeth, uh, he that, uh, excuse me, he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. So my friend, receiving Christ, everyone in here that knows Christ is their Savior, received Him knowing they were making a public decision, but sure beat being in hell forever and ever. And it was so much better to be with someone who would love me so much that he would shed his blood on the cross for me. He would die one of the most cruel deaths that man could ever design and do that for me. My friend, he wants to do that for you today. Are you 100% sure that if you die today that heaven's your home? First John chapter 5 says, that you know, you can know. Why? Because you believe on Him. That is, you, the word believe there has the idea you've trusted Him with your life. And you've given yourself to Him. He's the head. He's over you. You've given yourself to Christ. You believe on Him. God doesn't break his word. You called upon him. You wanted him to save you. For as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. The children of God, the men, the women, all become children of God who receive him. Do you know, are you absolutely certain if you died today that heaven's your home? If not, I want you to have that chance. Let's bow our heads, please.